0: Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves and what it means to be fully adopted into the family of God. We hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith. If you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes. Here's John.
1: This session we want to address the subject of emotions, how we feel. Emotions are a little difficult for us to come to grips with because In the first place, we can't see them directly. And if you can't see something directly, it's hard to measure them, much less quantify them or describe them. But even though we can't see them, we know we've got them because we feel them. Emotions are perhaps one of the most important aspects of our lives to consider. How we deal with emotions on a day-to-day basis really determines the quality of our life and also determines how functional we are in our relationships. And so in this session, what I want us to address is what these emotions are, how they they arrive, how we go about feeling them, and the effects that they have on us, and then to look, of course, at what the scriptures say concerning our own feelings, our own emotions, and what it is that God has done for us uh, with regards to our feelings or emotions. I think the best place to start is to give you just a general description of what emotions are. I want to break the subject of emotions into two categories. I want to first of all talk about the physical nature of emotions. You know how when sometimes you get out of bed and you just kind of fall into that blue funk? and it just, You know when it, it just weights you down so bad you feel like somebody's got a 25-pound weight on your chest and sometimes you can't even get out of bed because of that. We actually are feeling something there. Now, we might label that as feeling blue, or feeling depressed, or feeling bad, or down, or something like that. But actually, there's a physical component to that emotion. We're actually feeling something. And what I want us to consider, first and foremost, is just that, the physical nature of our emotions. So our emotions, the way we feel, can be broken into two categories. First of all, the physical, and then we'll look, secondly, at the mental category, or mental component, rather, of our feelings physical part of our emotions actually determines, and this is, I'm going to summarize the literature and the research for you, but the physical part of our emotions really determine how strongly we feel whatever we're feeling. So, the physical determines the intensity of our emotions, how strongly we're feeling. And the way it does so is because of a, a, a particular part of our nervous system called the autonomic nervous system, Almost sounds like the automatic nervous system, doesn't it? The autonomic nervous system is that portion of our central nervous system that actually keeps us breathing, so we don't have to think about it. Keeps our heart beating, so we don't have to say, beat heart. Now sometimes, I realize, when you get scared enough, you might have to tell your heart to start beating again when you feel like it stopped. But for the most part, the autonomic nervous system keeps all of our physical functioning in order. And because of that, Whenever we experience an emotion of some sort or another, this autonomic nervous system is at work. It's changing our physical status. Now, there are many, many changes that correlate with the emotions or the feelings that we uh, experience on a daily basis. And I just want tonight just to give you an overview, kind of a brief overview of some of those changes, some of which you've probably experienced from time to time or can uh, remember experiencing. One of the first things that happens to you whenever you begin to feel an emotion of one sort or another is this autonomic nervous system changes the uh, various parts of your body so that in, in some respects your physical nature on the inside is changing. Even though you look pretty much the same on the outside, physically you're changing from the inside. Things like two little adrenal glands that sit—they look like little fat globules on top of your kidneys secret their hormones into your bloodstream this gives you that agitated feeling that prepares you to leap tall buildings with a single bound or to outrun a freight train or a speeding bullet this is an arousal that kicks in physically because there's a blood chemistry that's that's changing in your in your hormone system as the adrenaline hits your bloodstream now simultaneously there are some other changes that take place for instance the pupil of your Eye will dilate to allow more light to enter in. Your hands will become a little bit sweaty in the palms because actually the electroconductivity of your skin has changed to allow for more tactile stimulation. There are some other things that are more directly involved that you experience, like anybody ever experienced butterflies? When you get nervous and somebody calls you up front to talk in a group or uh, you're going to go out and do something, with a bunch of people watching you start getting butterflies in your stomach, or sometimes it's referred to as a hollow feeling. This is brought on by a physical change that occurs when your autonomic nervous system tells your, your gut, the, actually the digestive process, to stop its action. The smooth muscle contraction known as peristalsis literally shuts down and stops altogether when you're confronted with a threatening situation. And that accounts for the hollow feeling, sometimes we call them butterflies in our stomach. At the same time, the blood flow is directed away from the digestive tract to the extremities, to your arms and legs, so that you can either fight or flight, run from whatever it is that's threatening you. All of these changes that occur, the blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, breathing is increased, more shallow, all of these prep all of these changes, physical changes, are preparing you to actually deal with the threat in some way. Now, there was a fellow who did a whole lot of research on this. His name was Hans Selye, and he wrote a book entitled The Stress of Life, an old book now, in which he described the various physical changes, like I've just been describing for you, that he noted measuring uh, biological reactions of animals under laboratory conditions uh, in which he exposed them to various types of physical stresses. And he came up with, with a syndrome that I think is very useful in us understanding our emotions and how they affect us. I'm going to try to make a jump now from the experimental animal research to us human beings. And I know there's some things that we have in common with animals. One is we have nervous systems that react to physical changes in our body. And so we're going to try to make, make this jump uh, with you in mind in order for you to begin to see what these feelings or emotions can actually do to you. And in order to do that, I need to show you on the board here a, what the syndrome was that selye called. It's, it's actually the general adaptation syndrome, he called it. It's not necessary that you remember that. But it plots out on a graph what happens to us when we encounter a threatening situation. Now, selye started out, of course, with a baseline measure. Now, that's not an EKG. An EKG, like that, means the fellow's is dead. Okay? This, this means that everything is functioning normally on this baseline. So you could say the heartbeat is about 72 times a minute, they're breathing about 24 times a minute. All of the electrochemical reactions in the body are functioning normally. This is the normal baseline. And then he introduced a stress. Now this stress that he was, was concerned about was basically, as I said, a physical stress. Electroshock, heat, cold, different types of stress like this that he did to these animals. And then he measured their physical response to those stresses and and he was trying to get at the physical component of our emotions and measuring the intensity of that. When he began to measure it, he noted this syndrome. He noted that, first of all, as you might suspect, as soon as the stress enters As soon as the stress happens, the body changes in response to it. And of course he labeled this change in which all of these measures that he had taken before shot up, he labeled that as the alarm. The alarm stage. That alarm stage meant basically the body realized that something was going on, something was wrong, things were uh, not right, and it must respond to that stress. During this alarm stage, these kinds of physical reactions took place that I just described for you, the heart rate changes, the blood pressure changes, all of these things happen without any conscious thought on the part of the subject whatsoever. But he noticed that these changes would only occur to a certain extent. Obviously, your heart rate can't go up to the point where you die, necessarily, unless you have a bad heart, but it'll only increase to a rapid pulse rate uh, only so high. Now that would vary from individual, and then it would kind of level out. And Selye noted that as the stress persisted, as the stress continued, that the body would continue to respond to that stress with the heightened response noted in the alarm stage. And he called this stage the resistance. the resistance stage, which simply means that as long as the stress is there, the body is geared up towards that. And of course, naturally, you're going to feel these changes occurring within within your body. During that resistance stage, the body is fighting the stress as it persists. So as long as the stress continues, the body continues to react. Messellier further noted that what goes up sooner or later must come down and he noted that over a prolonged period of time, as long as that stress continued that no matter what the animal was like, no matter what the condition was, sooner or later those bodily functions would return back to the normal line, but the problem is they didn't just come back to normal, they went on down ultimately to death. This death Involve the death of the entire organism. In other words, these animals living under prolonged stress would sooner or later collapse, and so he called this, of course, the exhaustion stage. That's exhaustion. The exhaustion stage. Now, <clears throat> they're not just exhausted in this case, they're dead. Okay, But I want us to understand something about correlating this with our stress. When we experience stress of any sort, any kind of a threat, I like to use the example of walking down a mountain pathway in Colorado. I came from Colorado, and I, I love the wilderness areas. They're very beautiful. We used to go backpacking all the time, and we get up in the, in the mountains, and you're walking down this beautiful mountain pathway, you you round a corner in late spring, early summer, and lo and behold, you come face to face with a grizzly bear, standing on its back legs, looking at you like lunch. Hmm. What's going to happen immediately at that point? Well, your body's going to perceive that threat. It's going to, your eyes are going to see that grizzly bear, and you're going to put two and two together and say, this grizzly bear is going to eat me for lunch, and automatically now, without you even thinking about it, all these physical changes are going to take place. So you've just gone through the alarm stage. All these physical changes are going to take place in your body, either to fight or flight, whichever you think is going to be most useful at the moment, and your body is geared up for this. Now, if you're able to get away from the grizzly or he, he wanders off, then your body is going to return back to the normal level again. But you see, some people have to live with a grizzly bear. It's kind of like living with a rattlesnake. It can be done, but you have to do it real carefully. And by this, I'm talking about the kind of stress that's produced in relationships. In a dysfunctional family system, where there is constant stress in the household, people have learned to live with a grizzly bear. At least they think they're living with a grizzly bear. Actually, they're resisting the grizzly bear. And as long as that stress persists, just like in Selye's diagram here, as long as that situation, circumstance, persists, there is a stress in their life that they are resisting. Now, true to Selye's syndrome here, as long as that stress is there, the resistance is going to be there, but sooner or later you're going to reach this point of exhaustion. Sooner or later you're going to come to this point where your body can't take it anymore. Now it's doubtful, it depends on the nature of the stress and the circumstances, but it's doubtful that your whole person will die. More likely, only a particular part of your body will die. The classic kind of illustration of this has to do with the Uh, executive syndrome in which an executive in business has to live under constant pressure and constant stress in order to make a living and after a prolonged period of time of that constant stress or pressure, part of his stomach lining dies. and We call that a peptic ulcer. You see, it's not just the whole organism that dies or brings death, but it can be actually just part of us that dies and experience uh, we can experience death in a particular system. Now, there's a fellow who wrote a book about all of this. His name is C.I. McMillan. He was a doctor. And he wrote a book called None of These Diseases from a Christian point of view, in which he outlined very carefully this kind of syndrome. By the way, this is called a psychosomatic disorder. Let me put that on the board for you because so you understand what we're talking about. The psychosomatic disorder which is actually a compound word. Uh, The the word psycho comes from the Greek term suke, which is also translated soul, and every time you think of psycho you probably think of the Alfred Hitchcock movie, so let's get that out of our minds. Psycho just has to do with the mind. Soma, the Greek word from which somatic comes, has to do with the body. A psychosomatic reaction is a mind body type of reaction. In other words, it's a physical reaction in our body that's produced mentally. And in his book C.I. McMillan addresses all sorts of psychosomatic ailments that we have because of the stress that we live under. He lists out such things ranging from hives, just breaking out and rashes and skin rashes, skin disorders, to uh, breathing types of disorders. He links it with uh, coughing, he lists it with with asthma. He lists uh, out all sorts of respiratory kind of ailments. He also uh, lists out circulatory ailments like uh, heart disease, blood pressure disease, and that sort of thing. And he lists, of course, the digestive tract. The digestive tract takes, uh, I started to say, takes serious gas, but there's no, no pun intended on that. The digestive tract actually really gets hammered on psychosomatic disorders, primarily because its function is shut down under stress altogether. And those digestive juices and enzymes and so on in that digestive tract that's meant to digest your food begins to digest you instead if it's left there too long. So there are a a lot of different types of disorders from ulcers to colitis to all kinds of things to very painful cramping and all sorts of things related to stress. Now, Psychosomatic disorders account for about half of the hospital beds being filled in America. Did you know that? These are old statistics that I have, but I want to share them with you anyhow. Over half the people that go to a hospital actually do so because they're suffering from a psychosomatic disorder of one sort or another. Now, over two-thirds of the people that consult a physician are consulting them because of a psychosomatic disorder. And let's clarify something now. I'm, not, I'm talking about psychosomatic disorder. I'm not talking about hypochondria. Hypochondria is when you think there's something wrong with you and there isn't anything wrong with you. That's hypochondria. Hypochondria is what I got when I read my wife's nursing books and all those symptoms of those rare diseases. I would begin to read that and say, ah, oh, that's me. I've got it. I'm sure I'm going to die with this terminal disease of whatever this disease was. <laughs> that's, hypo, that's hypochondria. Psychosomatic disorder is a real physical damage being done to the body because of stress. And psychosomatic disorders are very common, extremely common. Not all of them do serious damage to us. For instance, let me give you an example of one. If I were to call one of you out of the audience, the studio audience here and and have you come up and stand with me and ask you some embarrassing questions, we would all be able to see a classic example of a psychosomatic response, wouldn't we? We would see the blushing take place. Some of you are getting red just thinking about it. We would see that uh, the, the blood vessels in the face are dilating and actually allowing more blood to flow so your face would turn red. Right? That's a psychosomatic response. It's not, obviously not, no one's going to be killed or hurt from blushing. Uh, however, there are some more serious ones. Let me give you a biblical one that is one of my favorite ones. And that is that when Jesus was in the garden on the night before he was crucified, remember the story, how he submitted himself to a shockwave of grief and astonishment. He was at that moment actually bearing our griefs. He was carrying our sorrows on himself. He submitted himself to take on the full pain of all the stress we've ever felt in our life or ever will feel. And if you read the narrative in the Gospel accounts carefully, you'll see how he walked into the garden, he took on himself that burden of stress, and it dropped him to his knees. He became weak and fell to his knees and then fell on his face. And then Luke, the physician, records for us the psychosomatic response. He began to actually sweat drops of blood. So intense was the pressure that was on him. He bled through his sweat glands. Now, we're going to talk about that a little more in just a moment, but I want you to to see that some psychosomatic disorders can be very serious. In fact, there was a researcher team, a husband and wife team, by the name of LeShan, who actually correlated the increase of cancer in our society with the increased pressure or stress that we live under. I think you all realize, of course, that we're living in a pressure cooker type of society today. When we get home at night and we turn on the 5 o'clock news, you see, we not only have to deal with the negative stuff that happened to us that day, but we have to see all the problems of the world for at least an hour before we can go on with our life. And when you watch everybody else's problem or you pick up the newspaper and you see all the things around about you, you're going to have to take on that increased stress load. Lashan and Lashan did a study that correlated the increase of cancer in American culture with the increased stress, particularly related to the threat of nuclear war and also just the increased daily stress we live under. This is a very serious, threatening kind that we need to come to grips with in terms of dealing with our own emotions, the fact that they do actually cause us to become sick. Now, the Bible talks about this, and we'll get into that in a moment. But I want you to be aware of the fact that when we go through this kind of response, we're going to go through it, it's natural to go through an alarm reaction, a resistance uh, stage, but even when we go into the psychosomatic ailment, even when we we actually experience death in a tissue or death in an organ, and we wind up in the hospital or go to the doctor, the problem is not just a physical one at this point. You see, the problem here, even though it shows up physically, in the symptoms is not just a physical one, but rather the problem is how we're dealing with this stress. So it becomes a mental problem as well. And This brings us to the second component that I want us to consider here this evening concerning emotions and that is what we think about, or it's called a cognitive component, we'll just use the term mental component. Because this mental component actually determines the quality, the quality of what we're feeling, whereas the physical determines the intensity of what we're feeling. You see, the intensity of uh, the physical component is based primarily on physiological changes within our bodies. In other words, the physical arousal that takes place with the autonomic nervous system controlling our bodies and and the functions of our bodies is only going to be so intense depending on on the nature of the stress we encounter. And there are only certain changes that are going to occur. For instance, your heart rate can either go up or down. There isn't a qualitative difference in your heartbeat depending on the stress you're experiencing. And so the physical component of your emotions can only account for the intensity of your feelings. They did a very ingenious study. I won't take the time to go through all of it with you, but I'll just mention it to you. They, the only other animal that's more experimented on in psychology than the white rat is a college sophomore. And they used some college sophomores in this particular experiment to separate out the mental component from the physical component of our emotions. And what they did was they, this of course took place, I believe in the late 60s, early 70s, And so they had no trouble finding volunteers to experiment with a new drug on campus here. So they said, we've got a new drug and we want to give you all a shot of this drug and we want you to volunteer for this experiment. Now the experiment really was this. They were going to create a physical arousal in each student and then they were going to compare those that had the physical arousal with those that did not have the physical arousal and see how their feelings were affected just by the physical arousal. And they came up with a very ingenious way to do this. They gave these students shots of epinephrine, which is kind of a synthetic adrenaline, which would arouse them, make them very hyper. But in order to separate out the mental component, they couldn't just arouse half of the students with this and and the other students, of course, you, some people get aroused just when you get a shot, you know what I'm talking about? So. So, of course, they had to give everybody a shot, and half of them got the epinephrine, and the other half just got normal saline, a kind of a salt solution. But they got a shot, nonetheless. That arouses us a little bit, just getting that shot. Now, in order to really separate out the mental component of emotion, however, they started putting these folks into four different categories. They had some who were aroused with the epinephrine, and they put in a room with a stooge that they had hired to be happy. He was supposed to be euphoric, and to act like everything was wonderful, and this was the best thing that had ever happened to him, and wasn't it a beautiful day outside, and so on and so on. And in another room, another group of the students that were aroused went in there, and this stooge they hired to be angry, to be mad, to have nothing right, everything's wrong. This is a silly experiment, and so on and so on. And what they decided to do was to measure by questionnaires and also by direct observation, the response of the students in each one of these situations. To their surprise, they found that the arousal caused by the shot of epinephrine really didn't play a factor in what the students reported they felt. They found, as a matter of fact, that the shot itself didn't really make a difference What made a difference was the response of the stooge. If the stooge was happy, the student was happy. If the stooge was angry, the student was angry. And in this ingenious little experiment, they discovered that the mental aspects of our feelings, that is, the processes of our mind and our belief systems, actually determines the quality of what we feel. Now, this is a very, very important concept for us to understand, so I'm going to take the time to go through this very carefully. I want everybody to know about it. The mental processes, that is what you're thinking, actually determines the quality of your own emotions. Whereas the physical arousal from the circumstances you're in, with the autonomic nervous system kicking in and so on, the physical arousal actually determines the intensity how strongly you're feeling whatever you're feeling If we understand this we began to understand what Albert Ellis the fellow up in the Northeast uh, began to experiment with and what he called the rational what he calls rational emotive therapy he came up with this little ABC theory of emotions I want to share it with you quickly He said that generally you and I whenever we get aroused in one way or another whenever we're feeling, uh, this, this type of arousal here, we have in our minds this natural understanding of it that that arousal comes from whatever happened to us out here. So he says that event A, whatever happened to us, that's event A, naturally in our minds and our thinking produces the consequence C, the arousal, the physical arousal of our emotions. Now, a typical kind of scenario here would be when someone says something bad about you and it hurts your feelings and you go to someone else and you say so-and-so said something bad that hurt my feelings. We're naturally assuming that so-and-so and what they said about us hurt our feelings. But Ellis says it's not quite that simple. There's another factor that we need to consider here. It's not just what happened here, event A, that causes the consequence of hurt feelings, C here. But in between A and C, obviously, is B. And B, he says, stands for beliefs. What we're thinking, what we believe. You see, if the mental component determines the quality of our feelings, then no one really has the power to hurt our feelings unless we believe that which is necessary to give them that power. Now, this is real important. When I teach this a lot of times in counseling settings or in recovery-type settings, I always feel sorry for people at this point because here they are feeling bad to begin with. You know? That's why they're in counseling or that's why they're in recovery. They're trying to deal with their emotions, and they're feeling bad to begin with. Some of them are feeling terrible. And they've acted terrible, and so they've, they've gotten involved in a vicious cycle of feelings to begin with. And so I, I hesitate, really, to lay this on them, that the reason they're feeling bad is because they're thinking bad. Because, you see, normally they're feeling so bad, if you go ahead and tell them, now, the reason you're, you're feeling bad is because you're thinking bad, then they really blame themselves. And I know that's kind of a heavy load for us to take on. It's a heavy load for us to realize That it's my own thoughts, it's my own belief system that's causing me to feel the way I'm feeling. It's not just what people do to me. It's not just what people say about me. It's not just what happens to me that makes me feel this way. It's also what I'm thinking about what has happened to me. And I know that's kind of a heavy responsibility, especially when we're feeling down. Nobody likes to assume that responsibility. However, let me show you the hope in this. Let me show you the flip side of this. If we can assume that it's our own belief systems that's making us feel the way we feel, if we can assume that Ellis is right, that it's not just what happened to us in event A but it, that produces consequence C, but it's also our beliefs about event A, and particularly about ourselves with regards to event A, If we can come to understand that, then we can develop a key to determine our own feelings. We no longer have to be at the mercy of everybody and everything around us anymore concerning our feelings. We can actually develop a key to controlling our own feelings. Many people feel today that they are at the mercy. They believe that they are at the mercy of other people. Other people have to behave, other people have to be nice, other people have to do what they think they ought to do, other people have to in some way respond in order for them to feel good. And if other people don't respond like they think they should, then they're not going to feel good no matter what. This is a very dangerous trap, an exceedingly dangerous trap, because what it boils down to is a loss of control over our feelings. We have no longer have control over our feelings if we think that everybody else and every other situation out there can make us feel bad. But if we'll assume responsibility for our own feelings and understand that it's what we're saying to ourselves about ourselves in relationship to our environment that determines our feelings, then we can begin to deal with our feelings. So my goal in this is to quit allowing your feelings to control you. I'm hoping that you'll be able to understand that you no longer have to be controlled by your feelings. That you can actually control your feelings. You no longer have to lose control of your feelings. That you can actually control them. And this brings us to a measure of freedom that most people find difficult to even imagine, much less experience and live in. But yet this is the freedom the scriptures call us to. The freedom the Scripture calls us to is to be free from our own feelings, to be free from the depression, to be free from the bitterness and the hatred, to be free from the anxieties and worries that keep us in an emotional prison. The Scriptures call us to be free to deal with our emotions like Jesus dealt with His. And we're going to turn our attention now to that very thing. Let me. Go back through this with you very carefully once more because this is so important that you get an understanding of this. It's absolutely vital that you know about the mental component of our feelings because that's what you can deal with. That mental component is what gives you freedom. It's no longer than just the things that happen to you that determines how you feel. It's what you're believing about those things that actually determines how you feel. If you're believing that the things that you've experienced are going to rob you of your worth as a person and are going to make you less worthy in some way, if you're believing that, then you're going to feel terrible. If, on the other hand, you're believing that you are worthy as a person because of the gospel, then no matter what happens to you, you can control those feelings. Now, before we go any further on this, though, we're going to have to try to categorize our feelings here. And I want you to try to bear with me on this, because there's there's literally hundreds of, of descriptions of how we feel. There are, are literally hundreds of statements cons- that would describe how we feel, ranging from feeling good and euphoric, uh, feeling loved, feeling Uh, to all the negative stuff of feeling hateful or feeling bitter, to depressive stuff of feeling let down. I mean, there's a thousand different ways. And I, frankly, got confused when I was studying this. I got confused with all the various ways you can describe feelings. So I asked the Lord one day, I said, I I want you to try to simplify it for me so that I can lay hold of, of the feelings and get a handle on emotions in a little better way so I can teach others about it. And he took me to Galatians chapter 5, and the first three elements known as the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians uh, chapter 5, he gives us three categories of emotions that are headed up by what's known as the fruit of the Spirit. The first is the category of love. He says, now the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. First category is a category of love, and I want you to think of this as a cluster of, of emotions or feelings. We could use other terms here. You could use compassion or passion, or you could use different terms to describe it, but just think of all the all the emotional terms that you can think of of being in this category of love. It's a very positive thing, isn't it? Likewise the other two are positive. Joy? And by joy, let me, let me go ahead and, and mention this to you very quickly. We're not talking here about happiness. Whenever the Bible uses the term joy, it's talking about a supernatural inward condition of contentment, no matter what our circumstances look like. See, happiness depends on happenings. If you've got good happenings, you're happy. If you've got bad happenings, you're unhappy. So happiness depends on what goes on around you. Joy does not. Joy is not related to circumstances. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. But as a positive emotion, we can put other things there. I'm going to use another term because I'll be bringing it in later. I'm going to put the term hope here for you as well. Because hope really is a joyful, confident expectation about your future. Now this too is a very positive emotion, the emotions of joy or hope. But there's a third one in this cycle, and the last one he mentions is peace. Peace. Love, joy, and peace. These are the emotions that, that we enjoy. These are positive emotions. And I would like to break all emotional categories or all emotional experiences down into these three main categories, love, joy, and peace, just to kind of simplify things for us. Love, of course, has an opposite to it, as does joy and peace. And so while I was thinking about this, I thought, well, what's the opposite of love? I went all the way down. I, I didn't like this term at first, but I'm going to use it anyhow. It's a little harsh and I, I know we have a tendency to shy away from it. The opposite of love, I put down as hate. It's not a pleasant emotion, although it's a common emotion. But it's the very opposite of love and I've tried to envision this as being on a continuum. In other words, there are degrees. Degrees of love here, ranging from this highest degree all the way down to no love whatsoever. Hate is the absence of love. It's kind of like the degrees on a thermometer, you know, from, from hot to cold. There's, there's degrees of this emotional state that we're in, in this particular category. So I went ahead and did the same thing on the other two categories. On the joy continuum, I also listed as the very opposite of joy... I started to use the word depression, but I, I hate to get in semantic games, and because of, of some things of clinical depression, uh, some physiological things, I shied away from that and stayed with what I consider to be the thing that causes us to be hopeless more than anything else, and that is we fall into self-pity, start feeling sorry for ourselves. The very opposite of having any hope concerning ourselves is to feel sorry for ourselves. We've There's absolutely no hope in self-pity whatsoever, no joy in self-pity either. Now, on this third continuum, I decided that peace is natural, uh, positive kind of thing. We all like peace and tranquility and so on, and we know what that means. But what the opposite of that was, was a little more difficult to come to grips with, and so I picked out the, the term anxiety, and we'll just use that for our class. Anxiety. Or you could use the term worry here. Anxiety or worry is the opposite of peace. Now, because I labeled these things positive, these are positive emotions up here. Love, joy, and peace, fruit of the spirit, they're positive. I thought immediately I ought to label these on the bottom as negative. But the longer I thought about this, the more I've, I discovered that if I label these as negative, then we're kind of stuck here. We're either spiritual, love, joy, and peace, or we're all negative down here and unspiritual. And on top of that, these things I discovered were not just negative kinds of experiences. Because of the physical component in emotions, these things down on the bottom, these experiences, bring with them death. And as a result, I thought it would be better to label them what the Bible calls these experiences. The Bible doesn't call them negative emotions. It calls them sin, sinful emotions. Now, in order to understand why it's sin, realize that God didn't just wake up one day and say, well, I think making ha- or I'll make hating people a sin. You see, God labels anything that kills us, sinful. The wages of sin is death. Anything that brings death in any way, shape, or form into our lives is sinful. And so these emotions, through the psychosomatic disorders that we experience, brings death into our life. And that's why God calls them sinful. But then I got depressed. I said, oh, my word, here I am sinning all the time. (coughs) Here I am, feeling all this hatred, self-pity, and anxiety. I try to cover it up as best I can, for the most part. But I'm feeling all this thing, so I'm either running around filled with love, joy, and peace, praising God and saying hallelujah all the time, or I'm sinning, one or the other. Okay? So we've got got us a little bit of a problem here. Now, a lot of Christian people get into that trap. You can see them on Sunday morning, especially in Religious Entertainment Center. You can see them grinning and you go up and you ask them, how you feeling? And they say, fine. Now let me give you a quick definition for fine. Fine stands for freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. So the next time someone gives you that plastic smile, when you ask them how they're feeling and they say fine, you'll know exactly what they're talking about. You see, we do that because Well, for two reasons. Number one, we don't want to be vulnerable to people, so we don't want to tell them exactly how we're feeling because they might think we're not spiritual. Okay, and number two, nobody cares how we're feeling anyhow. So as soon as you start to tell them how they're feeling, they kind of walk off, excuse themselves, and politely ease out of your life. And I've had that happen as well. But the real important thing I want you to keep in mind is in between these two categories, the positive and sinful emotions, there's another category of emotions that I'm going to label negative. These things don't feel good. These negative emotions that I'm going to talk about don't feel good, but they're not sinful. Let me illustrate. Between love and hate, which is the absence of love, it's possible for you to be angry and not sin. As a matter of fact, the scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 4, be angry and sin not. Now uh, It goes on to tell us how we're going to do that. And as much as it, it goes on to tell us not to let the sun go down upon our wrath. Which means that when you're angry, you're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to learn to deal with that anger instead of stuffing it down inside, denying that it's there. You're going to have to learn to deal with it instead of indiscriminately dumping it on anybody or anything around you. You're going to have to learn to deal with it by believing the gospel before the sun goes down reason is that if you go to bed angry, you're going to wake up hating. You see, when you experience these negative emotions, you're on a slippery slope that leads down into the sinful emotions very quickly. And we're either going to have to choose to believe the gospel, which we'll talk about a little later, or we're going to wind up down in those sinful emotions. But what I'm pointing out is it's possible for you to be angry and not sin. Jesus experienced this in the temple. Remember when he walked into the temple and he saw the merchants there making money off religion, and he was angry. Had you been there, you would have seen fire coming from his eyes. When he drove out those sacrificial animals, turned over those money changers tables, and drove them out, he cleansed the temple saying, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. He was mad. He was angry, but he was not hating. He was not sinful. Likewise on the continuum between joy and self-pity, it's possible for us not to experience the fullness of joy or hope but not to be down here in the mully grubs feeling sorry for ourselves either. It's possible for us to experience anguish or real pain without feeling sorry for ourselves. Now again, just like anger, there's a danger there because if you hurt long enough, you're going to start feeling sorry for yourself. But just to hurt in and of itself doesn't mean that we are sinful. Everybody following that? Just, just because you're hurting doesn't mean that you're sinful. As a matter of fact, when you're hurting like Jesus hurt, it can mean the opposite. It can mean when you're facing the pain and you know you're hurting, that you're dealing and coping with your emotions like Jesus did. Likewise, on the third continuum, between peace and anxiety, there's another negative emotion here that I have to get a little technical about. The term that I should use is fear between peace and anxiety, I should use fear. But fear is one of those terms that has to be contextually defined. In other words, you have to define fear, what kind of fear you're talking about, etc., in every situation to really get the full meaning. And because it's been associated so often with anxiety, that is, fear of failure, fear of rejection, and that sort of thing, it's been associated with worrying. I'm not going to use the term fear, even though it's technically correct. Uh, I'm going to use another term. It's a little watered down, but I think you'll get the meaning. I'm going to put the term concern in between peace and anxiety. Concern. This means that there's something objectively wrong. You see, when you're walking down that mountain pathway and you see a bear, it's not sinful for you to be afraid. Everybody follow that? That's objective reality. That's a natural response to an objective threat. However, if you're walking down that same pathway and you haven't seen the bear yet, but you think you might and you're afraid and don't want to go any further without any concrete evidence to suggest that, that there might be a bear out there, then you're probably dealing with anxiety and not true fear. So I'm going to use the term concern just to kind of wrap it up um, in this category. So that we realize that there are going to be things we're concerned about, like Jesus was. He was concerned about his disciples. He was concerned about teaching the multitudes. He was concerned about building his church. He was concerned about seeking to save that which was lost. Concern motivated him most of his life. Likewise, Jesus felt extreme anguish, not only in the garden, but in many opportunities. As a matter of fact, the memory verse that I always memorized when I was a child, shortest verse in the Bible, which is why I memorized it, John 11:35 35 says Jesus wept. He felt hurt. He felt pain. Nothing wrong with feeling pain. Nothing wrong with hurting, or feeling anguish. Jesus, we've already seen, was angry. He felt anger. So these negative emotions, there's nothing wrong with them. And by the way, these negative emotions don't hurt us. Now, we think they're going to, but they don't. What hurts us are these sinful emotions down here. Let me illustrate this to you as we wrap up this session. The negative emotions that we feel are necessary for this reason. If all we felt was love, joy, and peace, we would never leave the room because that's what we want. We want to feel love, joy, and peace. And if that's all we felt, we would never do anything else than what we were doing when we felt love, joy, and peace all following me? So the negative emotions are necessary to move us to action. They're not something to be avoided. They're something that is necessary in our life. However, as I've already pointed out, those negative emotions can lead to those sinful emotions very quickly in the absence of the gospel. And what we have to learn to do then to control our own emotions is to first of all recognize what it is we're feeling and then secondly to bring the gospel into it which involves changing the belief systems. Now, in a later session, we're going to talk about what God has wanted from all of us from the very beginning, and that is to repent. Literally, the word repent means to change your thinking, change those belief systems. That's really what he's after. When we change our belief systems about our circumstances and our situation in life, then we can actually keep our emotions from going into the sinful level and becoming destructive to us personally through psychosomatic disorders and destructive to our relationships with others because as we lose control over our emotions we damage not only ourselves but we also damage our relationships with other people as well therefore if we can learn to control our emotions to keep them in that negative between the negative and the positive level we're going to learn to live a more healthy life, not only individually, personally, but also relationally with others. Now this is where Jesus spent most of his time. The prophet tells us, Isaiah tells us, that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus spent most of his time living in a sin-cursed world with all of its stress, with all of its threats. He spent most of his time in the negative emotions. Now keep this in mind also, that the negative emotions still have an element of the positive in them. Anger still has an element of love in it. Anguish still has an element of hope and joy in it. Concern still has an element of peace in it. The sinful emotions have none of the positive in it. And this is what makes the difference between what is healthy and what is not healthy. Not only in terms of our relationships or our personal experience, but also in terms of our relationships. So what I want to leave you with is that these emotions that all of us have to deal with on a daily basis are absolutely vital to our well-being and not only our well-being but the, the health of our relationships and our relationship to other people as well. And We'll come back to this and study more in depth specifically of how the scriptures deal with our emotions in our next session. Thank you.
0: I was particularly impressed to understand how what I believe in my heart affects my emotions and how I feel. It's a real uh, revelation to me to realize that I can uh, control my emotions by controlling and knowing what I believe, especially by knowing what God says about me is true, that I'm worthy and significant in His love that I'm in union with Christ. These things take a a burden off my heart to do this on my own. And it takes a lot of fear away from living life on a daily basis, because I know and believe that I'm dependent on Him and He's dependable and faithful. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes.